Dr. Dan Guerre here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 27th of September, 2021. We were involved in discussion of epigenetics in the general sense, and then we were going to go back into a very frank discussion of epigenetic alterations uh, in terms of natural killer cells and some more description of that associated with aging. So that's what we're doing right now. I want you to understand that there's a um, phenomenon in human genetics known as parental imprinting. And what it really involves is not so much genetics as an addition of a methyl group to a CPG island in DNA. And it's this methyl group addition allows for the genes to be discriminated between the copy that's inherited from the father and the copy that's inherited from the mother. So it's called imprinting because of that, distinguishes the copy. And what happens during uh, recombination events early in embryogenesis, you get a copy prejudice so that a protein is ultimately going to be produced from a gene that's maintained, expressible, because it's not hypermethylated, from one parent or another. There are multiple examples of this. And we have not discussed them in any great deal in all the lectures I've done on epigenetics. Sometime I will devote an entire lecture on gene imprinting in humans. It's rather interesting. It's associated, as you might guess, with genes that are normally expressed with the mitochondrial genome because those are maternally inherited. Therefore, most of the genes that become imprinted negatively and heavily methylated so that they're not expressed transcriptionally are those inherited from the mother. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And um, so that, anyways, that is a copy prejudice that we'll talk about sometime soon. Now, there are multiple ways that DNA can be modified epigenetically. You have methyltransferases and demethylases, which will function on histone protein lysine residues. And that's kind of the canonical method for methylation. And again, this methylation is associated also sometimes with CPG island methylation. So you have methylation of cohering histone lysine residues with methylation of adjacent or nearby cis-acting DNA elements, but they're not necessarily working in tandem. <clears throat> now, I told you that another very common, and everyone knows this in biochemistry, form of um, erasable covalent modification is, of course, phosphorylation. So you have kinases and phosphatases, and the amino acids that those work on are primarily serine and threonine, to a lesser extent, tyrosine. Then you have methyltransferases, which function at the level of arginine, so that arginine can be methylated. However, arginine itself, as an amino acid residue in a histone protein 
can be modified by a peptidyl arginine deaminase or PADI enzyme. And basically what that does is in situ cause the citrullination of the histone. So that's in yet another covalent modification done in situ on a protein, which then will alter, because it's a histone being modified, uh, gene expression. And the curious thing about this, the enzyme PADI, PADI, which is again the peptidyl arginine deaminase, it's only deaminates arginine, uh, which means you're going to lose the amino group. So it's basically a deamination uh, ultimately, but it's called deaminase because of the oxidation state of the nitrogen. Um, only happens when the arginine is part of a protein. It's not when I talk about the, the arginine being deaminated as a free arginine residue, only when it's part of a protein. So that basically this is how you get citrullation within the backbone of a histone protein. And it was first picked up because it, it seems that an enzyme, PADI, which leaves the citru, uh, citrulline there in the protein as a covalent modification, is upregulated in many diseases, including many that are associated with auto-inflammatory responses. Those include rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and then MS, but also the PADI enzyme has been found upregulated in Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, and even in some cancers. So this particular covalent modification seems to be re related to a lot of disease states, which uh, goes back to what I was saying uh, yesterday in the lecture, that we know a lot about the epigenome. When I say a lot, I mean, we know more about the epigenome of diseased states than we do about the epigenome of healthy states. And so we haven't mapped that at all. And that's because it is a dynamic system, as, you, as you've been, hopefully, uh, frankly, uh, been led to understand. Um, one other thing that can happen, of course, is we talked about this many times, is again on lysine residues. You can um, acetylate those lysine residues on histones. And the enzyme there is called HAT, H-A-T, or you can remove the acetate with an enzyme called HDAC. And these HDACs also have another name and they're called sirtuins. Histone deacetylases of this whole class of proteins I've been talking about a great deal over the last several months. In fact, the last several years when I first discovered them in the literature, uh, sirtuins do a great deal of epigenomic retailering that results in rather profound changes in gene expression. And then multiple forms of these sirtuins, they're in the cytoplasm, they're in the mitochondrion, and they're also in the nucleus. And sometimes they can translocate. So you well understand that they have a high degree of modification potential. Okay. So there's that. Now let's go back to this JVC 2018 paper. I told you that methylation is an off-on switch for chromatin remodeling, and it's going to mediate nascent transcription. Now, both the combined accumulation of covalent histone methylation 
and sequence specificity has to be read out according to the level of transcript produced. This is pretty straightforward, as you might entertain. In particular, the methylation of histone H3 at lysine residues, that's very specific here, 4, 36, and 79, all that's associated with transcriptional activation, whereas methylation of histones, again, H3, histone 3, at lysines 9 and 27, is correlated with transcriptional silencing. So even within one histone, um, and on just a small cadre of lysine residues, you can turn on and off transcription. So histone methylation and demethylation are complex elastic phenomena, which means they can be impressed, and then that impression can be removed. Right? That's what an elastic response is. So the methyltransferase, specifically known as EZHT, which stands for the Enhancer of Zesty Homolog 2, catalyzes the acetylacemethionine-dependent trimethylation of histone lysine 27, histone 3 lysine 27. Then there's the members of the Jumanji domain containing, or JMJ containing, ferrous and 2-oxoglutarate dependent oxygenases. And they catalyze demethylation of methylated histone lysines. So JMJD3 and KDM6B and the ubiquitously transcribed tetratricopeptide repeat gene, X chromosome, as UTX and KDM6A, are all demethylases of the histone 3, lysine 27, 2 and 3 methyl groups. And UTX, that protein, appears to be constitutively expressed in many tissues. So that means you get this methylation, but then you have a constitutively expressed enzyme which will function to demethylate. So this is a very curious phenomenon. So now these are, again, demethylases. So the JMJD3 is inducible by a bacterial antigen known as the lipopolysaccharide, which we know induces uh, innate immune responses, right? Through the um, pattern recognition receptor system, amongst other uh, motifs that occur substantially segregated, but common throughout uh, cell types and cell lineages. So JMJD3 is inducible by LPS, but also by several cytokines, pro-inflammatory that is, and also growth factors associated with inflammation. So both enzymes play important roles in macrophage activity, macrophage development between M1 and M2, and indeed, such far-flung features as stem cell differentiation and function. So this protein UTX again, which is this, again, ubiquitously transcribed 
tetratrichopeptide gene X chromosome, that's the UTX stands for, is a component of transcriptional complexes, such as what we find in trithorax and MLL, that's mixed lineage leukemia, which regulates gene activation through a histone lysine, histone 3 lysine 4 methyltransferase and the histone 3 lysine 27 demethylase activity. So you get the idea here that there's a very powerful functional set of protein domains that are associated with transcription that regulate the methylome of histones within chromatin that modify gene expression, okay? So this is a really critical feature of this whole phenomenon now, okay? So you get the idea of what's going on. Now, let's go back to this paper, Annals of Cell Pathology. Physiological aging is, of course, an evolutionarily conserved process. We know this because, as we talked about many times, certain species have certain ages, right? So you know about some trees that can last for thousands of years, and you know about some animals, like insects, which may last two weeks, three weeks, like a housefly. And then somewhere in between there, you have cats and dogs, and then humans way up at 70, 80, 85 years of age. It's common median and mean uh, age for death. So <clears throat> this physiological aging, while it's evolutionarily conserved at the genetic level, is also associated with impaired function of the immune response. I've been trying to emphasize this for the last nine and a half months. Now, one of those immune cells that we're now uh, fashionably concentrating on are natural killer cells. So, in fact, natural killer cell dysfunction is linked directly, directly to the process we've, we've hit on before called immunosenescence. So there's an age-associated natural killer cell immunosenescence. And that's believed, according to this paper and many others, to be associated perhaps with an increase in otherwise non-virulent viral infection. And besides that, the potential for an oncogenic event. That means the initial stages of, of course, tumorigenesis. Now, <clears throat> NK cell-mediated elimination of senescent cells, which is what we're talking about here, I've already told you last uh, lecture, has been shown to decline with age. And so you get an accumulation of senescent cells, which could be picking up several mutations. Now, if those cells are found in particular tissues and organs that relate to organismal homeostasis, you could start to get morbidity-associated illnesses. So natural killer cell elimination of senescent cells is, of course, a direct elimination. And we talk about such things as migration, recognition, binding, etc. These are all phenomena that we talked about yesterday, just for that simple 
repertoire of receptors on the surface of the natural killer cells. Right? Now, you know that those natural killer cells that do this cytolytic function are called natural killer dim cells, D-I-M, right? as opposed to bright. And that's again associated with specific marker on the surface, that's CD56. Okay, remember that from yesterday's lecture. Now, the way they function, I also told you yesterday, has to do with this degranulation, which produces perforin and granzyme. And those are two proteins. Perforin perforates the target cell membrane. And granzyme is translocated through that perforation and then usually can induce one of two things, either outright classical apoptosis or necrotosis, depending on other receptor-mediated responses and intracellular alteration of metabolism. So this NK-DIM profile is what seems to diminish with age. Okay. But the total population of the natural killer cells doesn't seem to appear to change that much in aging systems in humans. So that's because you have an increase. Remember that the NK DIM cell, DIM56s, are about 90% common in the lineage, right? When you're younger. But as you get older, that ratio starts to drop. 80%, 70%, 60%, all the way down to 5 and 10% in the advanced elderly. And the compensation is for an increase in NK bright cells. Okay? Remember, those are pro-inflammatory and immunomodulatory. Okay? And that seems to be associated then with this entire aging response. However... There are some aging populations which seem to have more severe senescent associated morbidity. And those are ones which have also a decrease in the NK bright functionality. The functionality that's missing in the NK bright cells is not the pro-inflammatory, but the immunomodulatory pathway so that you don't get a resolution of the inflammatory response. And so that means you corrupt the normal regulation of adaptive immune and then acquired immune responses. So there was a study that this paper talks about that looked at cytokine production and NK bright cells, which normally produce cytokines. And this particular paper showed that Interferon gamma, MIP1 alpha, and interleukin 8, interleukin 8, excuse me, were all significantly lower in terms of expression and secretion in older NK bright cells than in younger NK bright cells, even though those NK bright cells start to dominate the natural killer cell population. So you can see that the uh, complexity is in the subtlety. So it looks like natural killer cell numbers and subpopulations vary with aging, basically. And you can get sometimes an increase or a decrease in CD56 dim or bright populations. In fact, in some elderly people, the decreased NK cell activity 
was actually associated with an increased, increased severity of cardiovascular disease, liver disease, and a whole host of infectious disease by specific etiologic agents like viruses and bacteria, and again, oncogenic events associated with tumors. So active natural killer cells seem to be necessary, right? And those seem to promote the healthy status in younger subjects. So they seem to be playing a very significant role in the surveillance phenomenon of the innate immune response. Okay. So it looks like these natural killer cells have this monokine production. So monokines are specific kinds of cytokines which modulate the inflammatory response. So this is kind of a subset of cytokines, right? So you can't rely on the absolute quantity of natural killer cells. That's obvious. But you, you also can't rely on NK bright versus NK dim unless you know something about that subcellular population and its level of cytotoxicity to damaged or uh, infected cells and or its production of inflammatory or modulatory, like monokine, cytokines. So this has to be um, fleshed out. If it's not, if that doesn't get completely determined, then what you find out <laughs> is that the data looks to be occult, opaque, and contrarian. I won't say contradictory, because, you know, that's a word that I use very rarely for such things in biology. Contrarian, which seems to create some kind of paradox. And we often find in biochemistry that those are all pseudo-paradoxes. Because you have to think about what's upstream and downstream of a given event ontology, rather than just simply look at substance concentrations, right? which really doesn't tell you much of anything because these are biologically dynamically active molecules. Okay, that's the whole key here. So this paper, which I'm going to discuss more thoroughly in the uh, um, video lecture, because I really like it. There's a bunch of other uh, manuscripts we're going to deal with on this subject. Um, it's going to tell us that natural killer cells, those subcellular species of them, they're modified... <laughs> And now, now you know why I brought this up in these last two lectures, by epigenetic phenomena, particularly methylation patterns, controlling gene expression in NK cellular populations, which can go in a negative state as one ages. And so those changes in methylation patterns that are not erased but that are maintained tend to be the ones that can precipitate the morbidity of higher infection rates and higher oncogenic events as we age. At least that's one um, data set that has been examined and that we have some evidence for. Okay. So what we want to look at in more detail, obviously, is the diaventomic control over the methylome homeostasis 
sensu stricto. Right? We want to look at the dialectical event ontology of that methylation pattern. Now, that's something that we're going to be able to explore in some depth in the literature, but we're going to realize pretty, pretty early on in that deep dive that there is a great deal of information that's lacking about the healthy methylome. And without information on that, it's very difficult to be able to tease out what we mean by the morbidity-associated methylation pattern on the natural killer cell subpopulations, altering the dim and bright functionality, cytotoxicity versus immunomodulation versus pro-inflammation. See those three components of those natural killer cells. So you get the idea of the complexity here, right? So that allows me then to go bad, go, go about just reminding you about this whole concept of this diet event tome. Now that's going to be involved in three different systems. The genome, the environmentome, and the immunoepigenome. I've combined the immunology and the epigenetics because they are coherent, even though they are not well described. We could separate those two out, but I like the trigonal planar way of describing dialectical event ontology, because I think with that, you can understand three systems functioning coordinately to create the phenomenon, which is the biological system. Okay. If we made it a four-cornered effect, then we would have to look at the superimposition of each of those uh, interacting with one another. And I believe that the epigenetic responses are ultimately maintained, removed, and triggered nascent and subsequently by the immune response. So the immune response is regulating the epigenome. This is my uh, current pet theory, and that's why I combine them as an immunoepigenome. And the reason that is is because the communication system that's existing throughout life in the individual that never goes away, although it's constantly changing in structure and function, if you think, for example, just the natural killer cells, right? Just the natural killer cells, but remember the macrophages too. I remember months ago we talked about Th1 and Th2 and Th17 and T regulatory cells. We talked about B cells and plasma cells. We talked about recombination events. And we talked about the production of TCR, a T cell receptor, versus the array of immunoglobulins, also known as antibodies. Remember all that complexity there? That's obviously a lot of writing, reading, erasure, you see. And that's, those are the hallmarks of the mechanism of the epigenome. So again, the, the genome has to do with, you know, you can look at it in multiple ways, but just take the neural network. Neural networks are processes becoming eventual in nature as opposed to simply substantial. Eventual means they occur over time and they change valency. And they, that means they change breadth and depth of potency, but also they change character and therefore function. 
So these processes are eventual, not substantial, and therefore you have an event ontology, not a substance ontology. So we're going to rely on you accepting that, because I do, and I say that an event ontology reaches across, and here I'm only going to describe the neural network, because that's where I first founded this theory, across neural networks that are genetic and environmental interaction domains. And that eventual response is articulated and indeed it's synthesized through epigenetic modifications of the type we're just talking about. Methylation and acetylation are the classical ones. So you get epigenetic modifications of what are otherwise canonical immune responses. And that thus that creates a responsive, both plastic, you make a change and it stays, and elastic, you make a change and it's eventually erased after reading, memory field, cellular memory field. And that's going to be, a, it's going to be capable of learning. The cellular domains are going to be involved in a kind of molecular ideation. And that ideation linked into alterations of gene expression which can, again, metaphorically be like a molecular imagining and understanding of the existing genome interacting with the environment and the immunoepigenome, all of that through time. So you get a pattern of events, which ultimately can appear as, at the base level, energetic fields rather than particles of matter, you see. 